Let's all bow before Almighty Yahweh. Father, we come before you today. We thank you so much for allowing us to be here to worship you on your holy day. We pray that your blessings would be upon all those here and all those watching online, that you would help us to overcome and help us to walk according to your ways. Father Yahweh, help us to do your your will and not our own. Help us to understand your word rightly. Father, be with us, guide us, direct us always, that we might be blessed in you. And we ask all this in Yahshua's beloved name. Hallelujah. Y'all may be seated. It is uh, good to see everybody today, and it's good to see the other half of the congregation that we're out for the last uh, two, three weeks. We've had many, many people gone. Of course, I was gone too, so. but um, it is certainly a, a blessing to see everybody back. And for the most part, we still have a few on vacation, but um, certainly a blessing to, be, to, to see everybody here. When this message, as you can uh, see, it says, uh, does hellfire really exist? Does the Bible describe a place of perpetual burning and torment, as we so often hear within nominal worship? Now, I'm not one to normally quote the Pope as affirmation for what I believe. But in this case, I agree with the Pope. That may shock some of you. Shocked me when I first heard it. In a recent interview, according to the Pope, now some debate this, but according to an interview, as a private interview, the Pope said that people simply vanish away. So this is from Newsweek. By the way, you can find this CNN and Fox News, all the mainstream news sources, but this one's entitled As Hell Exist. Pope Francis says, no, a new interview that could change Catholic Church forever. Catholic Pope Francis made a startling revelation Thursday by stating that hell did not exist and in an interview with a leading liberal Italian newspaper. Seemingly going against centuries of core Christian belief, Pope Francis said the souls of sinners simply vanished after death and were now subject to an eternity of punishment. So they vanish. They, they simply disappear. So according to this reporter, now I will say this, some are disputing this, although I haven't heard the Pope come out and say this wasn't right. Catholic Church, they tried to clean up after this, but, but according to this reporter... This is what the Pope stated, that hell does not exist, that we simply disappear, vanish away in the place we normally call hell. And shockingly, that is exactly what we find really in Scripture. We cease to exist, Scripture shows. We cease to exist. So, again, I'm not one to normally quote the Pope as confirmation or affirmation of what I believe, but in this case, I thought, hey, why not? He certainly is... uh, you know, it's amazing. I find myself disagreeing so much with this Pope, and, and yet he's right on this issue. You know, as we see in the Bible, hell or Gehenna is not a place of perpetual torment for the wicked or the unrepentant. Instead, they simply disappear. They cease to exist. They are annihilated. They are annihilated. They are destroyed within this fire. So in essence, once a person suffers the punishment of Gehenna, they cease to exist. Just again, we just as we find here from this Pope. Now, when I say Gehenna or a hell, I normally say Gehenna. Why is that? Why do I normally use the word Gehenna when I also say hell? Or the word hell really comes from the Greek word Gehenna. And Gehenna actually goes back to an actual place, and that is to the valley of Hinnom. I want to spend a few moments talking about Gehenna, this word. 
Again, we know that it goes back to an actual valley. It's mentioned 12 times in the New Testament. In all instances, it's rendered the same way, and that is hell. Now, as we'll see, this concept of an everlasting punishment, torment, really derives more from Greek mythology, tradition, but a lot from Greek mythology, also including Dante's poem, The Divine Comedy, and some other works that have contributed to this to this theology, but for the most part, it comes from Greek mythology. So let's define this word, Gehenna. So here's how Strong's defines Gehenna. It says of Hebrew origin, 1516, also 2011, Valley of the Son of Hinnom, Gehenna, or Gehenim, a valley of Jerusalem used figuratively as a name for the place or state of everlasting punishment. So Thayer's, or I'm sorry, Strong's, number one, says here that Gehenna is of Hebrew origin. It's really important to understand that. Matter of fact, how many people realize there's so many words we find in the New Testament that are of Hebrew origin? Words like Satan. Well, that's a Hebrew word. It's, it's not a Greek word. Lama Lama Sabachthani, as Yahshua said, as he's hanging on the tree. Also, that's not Greek. There are so many Hebrew words within the New Testament, and, and uh, Gehenna is one. It goes back to the Valley of Hinnom. Now, we know what the Valley of Hinnom was used for historically. The Valley of Hinnom is where the Israelites would throw their trash. They would throw their dead animals. They would throw their garbage. They would, they, they, essentially, this was, was uh, the dump for the ancient Israelites of old. Now, it also says here that this is a place of future perpetual torment. Future perpetual torment. Or it's a place of everlasting punishment, as it says in this passage. Now, again, this concept of an everlasting punishment has more to do with Greek mythology than it does with Scripture. You know, we're going to see in the Old Testament what it means when it says, and the fire shall not be quenched, or his wrath shall not be quenched. You know, it explains it. We see that it's not a perpetual state. I want to look at now another source. Thayer's is a really good source to consider most of the time, although both Strong's and Thayer's are tainted with the theology we find within the church. But here's what it says. Hell is a place of the future punishment called Gehenna, or Gehenna of fire. This was originally the Valley of Hinnom, south of Jerusalem, where the filth and dead animals of the city were cast out and burned. A fit symbol, and I find this kind of interesting here, the way it phrases this. This is a fit symbol of the wicked and their, and their future destruction. Future destruction. So again, we see here that Gehenna is a place of a future torment, it again confirms here that Gehenna goes back to the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom, by the way, is on the south side, as we see here, of, of the uh, Jerusalem. Now, the last thing it says here is that Gehenna is also a place for future destruction of the wicked. Now, I believe Thayer's does, uh, that Thayer's believes in a perpetual torment, even though they say here, destruction as if it's final. Now, what do we know about the Valley of Hinnom? So we know Gehenna refers to the Valley of Hinnom, right? So what do we know about the Valley of Hinnom? Well, here's a few photos. Actually, here's one photo we took. Forget who took this. Maybe a Brother Ryan may have taken this, but just a phenomenal picture. But here from this photo, and maybe I'll just highlight a few parts here. So uh, this here is a uh, Mount of Olives. This is the Kidron Valley. Uh, this is a Temple Mount where we believe Fortress Antonia stood. This is the city of David, the old full mount here. 
Gihon Spring would be located here. And if you can see in this circle, you see this ravine, where that ravine is the Valley of Hinnom. It is on the south side of the city. So again, right here, that ravine, that is, that is the Valley of Hinnom. That is where they would throw their trash. Now here's another map. You can see here, this is the upper city. This is the city of David. So the original city of David, the original Jerusalem was right here. The, the, uh, the Kidron Valley, the Tyropian Valley, the Valley of Hinnom. Of course, this is the uh, Temple Mount area where we believe Fortress Antonia stood. We believe that the temple was probably within the city of David based on scripture. But that's some of the uh, locations we see here. So the Valley of Hinnom, again, was where Israel would burn their trash. Israel would throw their dead carcasses, as we find. It's also, we know, where they would sacrifice their children to Molech. I'm not going to describe that worship. But they would sacrifice their child and then throw the child into the, or, or place the child into the arms, or it would then slide into this uh, fire within this valley. So in essence, this valley of Hinnom was always burning, was always smoking. They were always throwing something in there. And based on this, partially from this, many in Christianity receives this notion of an ever-burning hell fire. So let me separate fact from fiction here. Fact from fiction. Well, we do find a place of burning, and there was plenty of things burned within this valley. It is not a place of perpetual burning. It is not a place where it would burn forever and ever and ever without time. So that is the difference between myth and reality. Matter of fact, if you go to the Valley of Hinnom today, it's actually quite scenic. Looks like a park. This was our last trip to the, uh, to the land of Israel. I think I have three photos here. This is, we actually filmed a, a uh, program right there, if I remember right. So a uh, very pretty area. There, there you can see. I think this is Wilson in the background, by the way. Right there. He took thousands upon thousands of photos while in Israel. And, uh, but you can see it's a very pretty valley today. Now, you do see some trash still, so I guess some things never die out. Here's another picture here, again, nice and green. Matter of fact, the greenest place in Israel was the Valley of Hinnom, believe it or not, which I found kind of ironic considering what it was and what it represents. And yet we see that it's very, very green. So this is the Valley of Hinnom. This is where the tradition, if you will, of an ever-burning hellfire derives from. And again, this is where Israel would throw their trash. Now, this is also where I believe and we believe where the final judgment will take place in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation speaks about a lake of fire. Or this is a lake of fire. It will someday be a lake of fire. Now, it's not going to be a forever lake of fire, a perpetual lake of fire, but there will be burning. Now, I want to talk about two other words here. We're not going to focus on these words, but I think it's important that we understand them. Uh, number one is a sheol. So sheol appears 66 times in the Old Testament and is rendered in the KJV as grave, hell, and pit. Grave, hell, and pit. Strong's defines it as Hades, or the world of the dead, as if a subterranean retreat, including its accessories and inmates. Now, this last part is really, again, Greek mythology. There's nothing within the definition of Sheol that would justify this concept of a place, of a subterranean uh, place for uh, souls or the dead. Uh, 
Now, the other word is Hades. Now, Hades is Greek. And Hades is found 11 times in the KJV and is rendered hell, except for 1 Corinthians 15.55, where it's rendered the grave, and that's in the KJV. Strong's defines it as, quote, the place state of departed souls. Now, according to Strong's, both Sheol and Hades refers to what? It refers to the world of the dead, to a subterranean place for departed souls. Now, the fact is, both of these definitions were manipulated through Greek mythology. We don't find in Scripture, in the Old Testament, or even in the New, where Sheol, or Hades, refers to a subterranean place for the departed souls. Matter of fact, it again occurs 66 times, Sheol, in the Old Testament. If you look at that, if you look at that word, look it up in the Strong's, you'll find that most often Sheol is rendered the grave. Sometimes a pit, sometimes hell, but most often the grave. That is how it was understood. The other thing to recognize is this. Sheol was for both the righteous and the wicked. Sheol was for both the righteous and the wicked. Now think about this for just a moment. The fact that both the righteous and the wicked goes to Sheol, how in the world could we ever consider this a place for punishment? If both the righteous and the wicked go to Sheol, why would Yahweh use this as a place of punishment? Does that make sense? Why would he punish the righteous? Because again, Scripture shows that both the righteous and the sinners or the wicked goes to Sheol. Now, we also know that originally both Sheol and Hades shared the same meaning. They were basically equivalent. It's, it's very similar to Elohim and Theos. It's very similar in meaning. As a matter of fact, if you look at the definition within Strong's, it's almost identical between those words. And the same thing is true here. Here's a, I want to read an excerpt. This is a book entitled What Christians Believe, a Biblical and Historical Summary. Pretty good book, fairly honest and uh, here's how it describes these terms. This is an intertestamental period. There were significant developments in eschatological themes. The first relates to the development of a compartmental view of Sheol. When the righteous and the wicked die, they go to different places. This is to be contrasted with the Old Testament view that Sheol is a place where both the righteous and wicked go. Under the growing influence of Greek concepts, notice that. Notice what it says under the growing influence of Greek concepts of a distinct body and soul, some Jews taught that after death the immortal soul, perishable and perishable soul, once detached from the ties of the flesh and thus freed from bondage, flies happily upwards. That's a quote from Josephus. It says, on the other hand, the wicked go to Sheol, which is now identical with the Greek Hades. This region of damnation is also called Gehenna. See, they, they mix all these terms up, by the way. A place of eternal fire, originally the old rubbish heap, and a place of child sacrifice south of Mount Zion in Jerusalem. It was known as the Valley of Hinnom, and that's page 423 and 424 within this book. So as we've already talked about, we see here that Sheol and Hades share the same meaning, and that Sheol was both a place for the righteous and for the wicked, and that's very important to realize. You know, contrary to what most believe, Sheol and Hades refers to the grave, and not to a place for immortal souls. You know, as we see here, this concept of an immortal soul is not biblical. It is not biblical. It's amazing when you think about it. How in the world can a soul be immortal? We're not immortal. How can our soul be immortal? The Bible doesn't speak about immortal souls. Here's where this concept comes from. It came from the Greeks, but it goes back even further. According to most scholars, it actually goes back to the Egyptians. The concept of an immortal soul ushers back to ancient Egypt. As we know, they had a very very um, elaborate view 
of the afterlife. So this concept of an immortal soul wafting down to this subterranean place where they suffer is not something we find scripturally. And again, we see here that even though Hades and Sheol took on different meanings and forms, that originally they meant the same thing. And again, they were both for the wicked and the righteous. Now we see here that some of the Jews adopted this pagan notion of an immortal soul. You know, some people think Judaism, because it is Judaism, it has all the truth. Well, you know, the reality is Judaism has picked up a lot of baggage, just, just like Christianity has over the years. Just because it's Jewish doesn't make it right. You know, they have something called the Talmud. They have something called the Mishnah. They have something worse, even called the Kabbalah. And believe me, this is not based on Scripture. They have many, many traditions. Matter of fact, they believe, just as the Roman Church does, that the rabbis have the authority to add to the word. So again, just because it's Jewish does not mean, mean it's right. We see here that Judaism picked up this concept of an immortal soul where from this Grecian influence, which really was, again, borrowed all the way back to the Egyptians. Now, we also see here a connection between, again, Gehenna and the Valley of Hinnom. As we've already seen, Gehenna today is no longer burning. I can assure you I've been there. I've been to hell. I've been back. It's no longer burning. It's no longer... There's nothing but green grass. That is it. So where in the Bible do we find this concept of, an, of, of, of hell fire, of this everlasting uh, fire that's going to torment mankind forever and ever without rest or release? I want to There's many, many passages of use, so we're going to look at many of them today. I'd like to begin, though, with Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, verse 24 says, And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched. And they shall be in a pouring unto all flesh. Now, based on what Isaiah says here about the worm not dying and the fire not being quenched, Many believe this supports this concept of an ever-burning hellfire. Many believe this supports this notion of hell. Well, number one, we know that worms are not immortal, just as souls are not immortal. Worms are not immortal. There has to be some other explanation here besides immortal worms. (laughs) What we see here is a worm's not dying. This is simply a reference to Yahweh's annihilation. To his destruction. This is what we, what we find within this passage. So when it says the worm shall not die, basically what it's saying is that the worm shall not die until Yahweh's judgment has been fulfilled. That is what we find here. Now, this also explains Isaiah's statement of the fire not being quenched. Again, it simply refers to the totality of Yahweh's judgment. Once Yahweh's judgment is complete, that worm will not live and that fire will not continue. That worm will die and that fire will be quenched. Now, we see many examples of this. So how do we know we're right? How do we know that this is not describing this concept of an ever-burning hellfire? It certainly seems to on the surface. You know, we actually see several um, examples, examples of similar language within the Old Testament prophets. But here's the difference. We know the context. And we know based on the context that this is no longer burning. So let's look at a few of those examples now. Let's look at a few examples showing where this, this notion of it shall not be quenched does not refer to forever 
or with that end. So the first example is 2 Kings 22. 2 Kings 22, verse 17 says, Because they have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other mighty ones, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands, therefore my wrath shall be kindled against this place and shall not be quenched. Now this message historically was given to King Josiah. This was in response to Judah's sin, not only under Josiah, obviously, this was accounting for Judah's long history of rebellion, and we know that Josiah was a great king. Matter of fact, because Josiah, he him, uh, because Josiah himself followed Yahweh, we know that he himself found mercy with him, and that Israel did have some success under this king. So what is this prophecy referring to? It's referring to Israel's demise, future demise, by the Babylonians. This is what this prophecy is referring to, the demise by the hands of the Babylonians. So based on how many understand this concept of something not being quenched, again, as we saw in Isaiah 66, the worm does not die, the fire shall not be quenched. Or here it says the same thing, that Yahweh's wrath will not be quenched. Or based on this, we should assume then that Israel would never more exist, right? Once Babylon removed Judah, that Judah would no longer exist, but we know this is not the case. We know that Judah experienced a full restitution, a full, a full rest, a restoration after the conquest of Medo-Persia. So historically, we know this is not the case. We know here that Yahweh's wrath was quenched. It was fulfilled. You know, once they paid for their time, again, they were brought back to the land. Yahweh eventually saved Judah and brought them back out of Babylonian exile. So again, what does it say about the concept of something not being quenched? What this shows is that when it says not, it shall not be quenched, this is not referring to forever. This is not literally referring to forever. This is simply referring to until Yahweh's judgment has been accomplished. Now, we also see an example of this in Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 20 says, Therefore, thus saith Yahweh Elohim, Behold, mine anger and my fury shall be poured out upon this place, upon man and upon beast, and upon the trees of the field, and upon the fruit of the ground. So nothing is going to be exempt. He says, and it shall burn. It shall burn, and shall not be quenched. Now what is Jeremiah speaking about here? Is he speaking about the end times? Is he speaking about when mankind will be judged, as we see, and as we'll look at in Revelation 20? No. He's speaking about Judah. He's speaking about, again, Judah's demise by the Babylonians. This is a future reference to Judah's uh, destruction by the Babylonians. It says here that it shall burn. It shall burn. It shall not be quenched. So again, based on nominal thinking, based on the thinking of many theologians, we see this. We should assume that Judah no longer exists today because we know that Babylon had uh, conquered Judah. Babylon burned Judah. And according to this passage here, Judah's fire from Babylon will not be quenched. But we know historically this isn't the case. We know historically that Judah has uh, thrived after this. Yahweh again brought them out by the hands of Medo-Persia, who conquered the Babylonians. And again, through Medo-Persia, they were allowed to go back to their home and rebuild their temple and rebuild their country, which led to the Hasmonean Empire and, and, and uh, through, through, through Rome. So this concept, of, uh, again, of it not being quenched does not refer to forever. And we see also here that it says fire shall not be quenched. It's not just judgment here. It's fire shall not be quenched. And again, according to Jeremiah, this fire 
would not be quenched, and yet we know historically it was quenched. Because, again, we've been there. We've walked down the streets of Jerusalem. We've walked through the land of Judah. There's no fire to be found. There's no more burning. So, again, this is not forever. Now, we see another example in Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 27, it says, But if you will not hearken unto me to hallow the Sabbath day and not to bear a burden, even entering in at the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then will I kindle a fire in the gates thereof, and I shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. So, you know, very specific prophecy here. This is not future-based. This, is, this has already occurred. And it says, and it shall not be quenched. It shall not be quenched. So again, we see here fire mentioned. We see here the phrase, and it shall not be quenched. We see here that this is in reference to the destruction that the, that the uh, Israelites, the Judah, would suffer by the hands of the Babylonians. And yet again, we know today that Judah is no longer burning. Judah is no longer burning. But yet scripture says here that Judah would suffer fire that would not be quenched. So how do we reconcile that? If, if this phrase shall not be quenched always refers to eternal, never-ending, where we would anticipate then seeing Judah burning today. But we know Judah is not burning today. Judah is not burning because this phrase eternal shall not be quenched does not mean this concept of forever as, as many believe. Now, there's one more example I want to consider. Ezekiel 20, 47 through 48, and it says there, and say to the forest of the south, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus saith Yahweh Elohim, behold, I will kindle a fire in thee, and it shall devour every green tree in thee, and every dry tree, the flaming flame, shall not be quenched. Notice that, the flaming fa- flame, the fire, shall not be quenched. And all faces from the south to the north shall be burned therein. And all flesh shall see that I am Yahweh have kindled it, it shall not be quenched. Now Ezekiel here is prophesying the same message as we saw in Jeremiah. Matter of fact, you know the main differences between these two men is, is one prophesied uh, while during in Babylon, the other prophesied still in Judah. Of course, Ezekiel was in, was in Babylonian exile by the time of his prophecy, and we know that Jeremiah prophesied without, for the most part. But the message between the two is the same, repent or suffer the punishment of Yahweh. Now, as we see here, because Judah refused to repent, Ezekiel prophesied here that Yahweh's wrath, Yahweh's fire would be poured out upon the land, and that that fire would not be quenched, it says that it would not be quenched, that it would devour the people, it would devour the land. Well, we know the Babylonians burned the cities of Judah. They went through and they burned, they destroyed the cities of Judah. We also know historically that Yahweh again brought them back. Yahweh restored them to the land through Medo-Persia. So in this case, we see here that the phrase shall not be quenched does not refer, cannot refer to forever. Because if it referred to forever, we would anticipate again seeing Judah burn today. And we know that Judah is not burning today. You know, we've seen multiple examples of this phrase, shall not be quenched. We've seen it in connection with Yahweh's wrath. We've seen it in connection with Yahweh's fire. I want to share a slide summarizing those. For those who enjoy Facebook, this would be a great slide, by the way, I think, to to a post. It says, shall not be quenched. So here's where we see shall not be quenched. It says, 2 Kings 22, 17 again, shall not be quenched. Jeremiah 7, verse 20, and it shall burn, and it shall not be quenched. Jeremiah 17, verse 22, and it shall not be quenched. And Ezekiel 20, 47 through 48 says, a flaming, fire, a flaming flame shall not be quenched. It shall not be quenched. 
And yet we know in all these cases, guess what? It was quenched. It was quenched. So we see here shall not be quenched is simply a euphemism or a Hebrewism for Yahweh's judgment, conveying that his judgment will accomplish, he will accomplish his judgment. This fire will continue until his, his judgment has been complete. I want to now transition to the New Testament because most of the debate is in the New Testament. I'd like to begin with Matthew 5, verse 22. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22 says, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever, whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Now the phrase hell fire here comes from the Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna, we all remember the word Gehenna. Gehenna refers to the Valley of Hinnom. This is, again, where the Israelites would burn their trash. This is where Israelites would, would take their rubbish, as we found in one, one reference. So what is Yahshua conveying here when he uses this word Gehenna? What is he saying? Where he's confirming here that those guilty of this sin would be in danger of destruction. That's it. There's nothing more than, a, than, than this. It's simply saying that if you do these things, that in the end you're going to be in danger of, of obliteration, of annihilation, of destruction. This is not saying, this is not conveying, though, that they're going to go to a place of perpetual torment where they will burn forever and ever and ever without, without rest. Again, according to Pope Francis, <laughs> they simply disappear. They simply vanish away. And that's really what we see in Scripture. They cease to exist. Now, we see another reference to hell in Mark chapter 9. Mark 9, verse 43 says, And if thy hand... Offend thee, cut it off, for it is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. There the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Does that sound familiar, by the way, that, that phrase? The worm shall not die, that fire shall not be quenched. Isn't that amazing? That what we find here, we found we, we also find in the Old Testament, and, and, and that provides some context. It says, and if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. If it is better for thee to enter, halt into life than having two feet, to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of Yahweh with one eye, than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. So Yahshua describes here a place where the fire is not quenched, and the worm doesn't die. Now, as we've already seen from the Old Testament, this phrase, shall not be quenched, does not mean forever. It simply communicates, it conveys the idea that it's not going to be quenched until Yahweh's wrath, until his judgment has been fulfilled, has been accomplished. Just as we saw with Judah. Just as we saw with the, street, the, the cities of Judah. That Yahweh prophesied that the Babylonians would destroy those cities with fire, and he says, and the fire shall not be quenched. Or those fires were not quenched. Not until his will was accomplished. Once his will was accomplished, those fires were quenched. Same thing here. This is not referring to eternal fire. This is not referring to perpetual torment. This is referring to Yahweh's destruction. Yahweh says that if you don't listen to me, if you don't repent, you are going to be obliterated. You are going to be obliterated. And again, we know that it's not forever. 
Now, the same thing's also true for the worm not dying. I'm not going to go into that again, but we know immortal, uh, immortal worms don't exist. And we know that this is simply a euphemism or a Hebrewism to show that, that Yahweh's judgment will not stop or will not be halted until it is finished or complete. You know, as a side note, have you ever considered the dichotomy of this belief when it comes to the character of our Father in Heaven? You know, on one hand, Christianity says that, that, that Yahweh is this benevolent, loving, mighty one, which I agree he is certainly loving and benevolent, that he would never harm anything. Matter of fact, they have a hard time reconciling this with Yahshua's return. But then when you think about it, when you consider the fact that they believe that Yahweh also is the one that's going to, to force these people to suffer literally forever without reprieve, without rest, without any rescue, it's just it's, it's beyond, um, it's, it's beyond reason, it's nonsensical. It's really contradictory to, to his character, who he is. So to believe that he would force us to suffer is just beyond what we find with Scripture. You know, we know that Yahweh is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And one of the things I believe that if we understand Yahweh's characters, we, we can decipher whether something is true or not true. And Yahweh is a benevolent. He is a loving, mighty one. Now, he does have judgment. But he's not a mighty one that's going to force somebody to suffer forever and ever and ever without reprieve. This simply does not, does not jive with who he is. Now, another passage many people use is Matthew, uh, Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verse 50, it says, There and, it shall, uh, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So the belief here, based on this phrase, wailing and the gnashing of teeth, that this must refer to an ever-burning hell fire where people will be tormented forever and ever. Now, I believe that this can also be explained with the suffering they will experience in Gehenna. Again, we don't believe that Gehenna is forever. We don't believe that the lake of fire is forever, but we do believe that there will be a lake of fire. And we do believe that those who, who defy Yahweh will someday suffer within that Lake of fire, they're going to be consumed, but they're not going to suffer forever. They're not going to suffer forever. But I can assure you, for whatever time that is, there will be wailing and the gnashing of teeth. Whether that's a minute or whatever it is, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, one of the most common passages used is the uh, passage in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, 41 I'm also going to read 46 here. It says, Then shall he say unto, also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into ever, to life eternal. So Yahshua here warns of two things. Number one, everlasting fire. And then he says everlasting punishment. So we see two things. Both, it says, Everlasting, But as we've already seen, this concept of something everlasting or not being quenched refers not to, not to forever, not to perpetual, but simply to Yahweh's destruction, simply to the destruction of the wicked. Again, as we saw in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, in the case of Judah, who saw, also suffered fire that was not quenched, again, that fire was quenched. That fire today is no longer burning. And as a result, we can apply that here. Yahshua is simply conveying here those who defy him, those who defy Almighty Yahweh will be destroyed. 
they will suffer forever lasting destruction. Now, something we haven't talked about yet, I want to sort of mention the Hebrew word olam. Olam. For those who know anything about Hebrew, this is a pretty common word. It means forever. Forever. Now, many of us, you know, most of us, I'll, I'll use this, you know, let me read this first and then we'll use this example. The word olam can refer to something being forever, perpetual. You know, Yahweh's feast days are forever. We know that. It's a perpetual command. We know that they're going to be kept forever. But we also know that this word olam can refer to a a duration and time. In fact, according to Vines, the major occurrence of this word is used as a, quote, simple duration. It is not used as forever or never-ending or perpetual, so olam does not always mean forever. It can simply refer to a duration of time. And again, those who suffer the fire, the lake of fire, will suffer for a duration of time, but not forever, but not forever. And, you know, we use the same, we use the word forever the same way in the English language. Most of you have kids. You know, there's nothing more distracting than when you're going somewhere and your kid says, are we almost there yet? And we'll say no. And they'll say something like, it's taking forever. Or they're not literally referring to forever, but it's taken a long time. Or maybe it's just taken a short time and they're just impatient. Whatever it is, I, 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 no, I won't speak for my kids, but, but that is how many of us use this word forever. It's not perpetual. It's not forever in that sense. It's simply a duration of time. Now, some may also point out and ask, what did Yashua mean here when he said everlasting punishment? Wouldn't this show that we are punished forever, not just for a short period of time. Where it's important to realize that there's a difference between punishment and punishing. There's a difference between punishment and punishing. Now, if he would have said eternal or everlasting punishing, or maybe that would convey this thought of suffering forever. But he doesn't say that here. He says eternal punishment, meaning that the state of that condition is forever. But they're not suffering forever. The state is forever, not the suffering. So they will no more have being. They will no longer exist. They will simply disappear. They will vanish away. They will cease to exist. I want to consider now a parable that many use to defend this idea of an ever-burning hellfire. That's the parable of, the, of Lazarus and the rich man. It's found in Luke chapter 16. Now, it's quite a bit of reading here, but I'm going to read the entire parable. Uh, Luke 16, 19 through 31. It says, there was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple, fine linen, fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at the gate, at his gate, full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and looked his sores, and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received thy good things, And likewise, likewise, Lazarus received 
evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither shall they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now, to begin with, it's important to realize what this is. What we see here is a parable. This is a parable, meaning that the message here is is symbolic and not literal, not in all ways anyway. You know, in short, I believe Yahshua is describing the division here between Jews and Gentiles. That's what we find. He's describing the division between Jews and Gentiles. In this case, Lazarus would represent the Gentiles, and the rich man would represent the Jews. And when I say Jews, the Jews here specifically are those who were hypocritical, I believe, and those who would put a division between them and other, other uh, nationalities, as we often s- saw with the uh, Pharisaical leaders. You know what's amazing about this passage and this message is that the Apostle Paul spends a great deal of time in the New Testament speaking about this division, speaking about how Yahshua broke down this wall that separated Jew from Gentile and that we are all part of the same promise Matter of fact, in Galatians, we find it there that, that ethnicity, social status, gender, none of that has any meaning when it comes to salvation. He says that we are all one. We are all one. And if he says we are one in Messiah, we are also ears of Abraham, as we see here. And, you know, by the way, for this reason, this is one, one of the reasons why I really have no tolerance with racism or putting a division because of, of uh, ethnicity or nationality. That's not something we should be doing as believers. Because again, as we find here and many other places, it doesn't matter what we are, what ethnicity we are, what gender we are, what social status we have within life. We are all one, Scripture says, a Messiah. We all share the same hope. We all share the same promise. We all share the same opportunity. Ethnicity has nothing to do with it. Now, in this parable, we see here that Lazarus ate of the crumbs of the table, or at least wanted to eat of the crumbs of the table. In Matthew 15, we find there that a Canaanite woman came to Yash with the Messiah. And he responds there by saying, by telling this woman that he was sent only to the lost sheep of, of Israel. And he says this, quote, It is not me to take the children's bread and to cast it to the dogs. Now, he's referring to the Canaanite woman. Now, she responds by saying, quote, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Now, how does Matthew 15 correspond to what we see here with Lazarus and the rich man? Where many Jews viewed the Gentiles as unclean, we see the reference, matter of fact, of dogs connected with the Gentiles. So there's a connection. There's the connection. The word dogs here, that he's just trying to get the crumbs from the table. This is a euphemism for the Gentile. You know, we see this also in uh, Peter's vision in Acts 10. So the language here connects Lazarus with Gentiles. And again, further, further shows that this parable is really speaking about the division between Jew and Gentile. 
That's what we're really, really referring to here. Now, many will point out verse 24. It says there that the rich man being in torment with a flame asked for this drop of water so that it could help with his torment. Well, here's the issue. Number one, verse 23 confirms that the rich man was in the grave, it says. That's what it says. In verse 23, it says the rich man was in the grave. It doesn't say that he was in a place of perpetual torment. It doesn't say that he was in a place of burning hellfire. It says that he was in the grave. Number two, if the man was literally in hell, as many believe, why is he asking for simply a drop of water? Why doesn't he ask for a whole bucket of water? Why a drop? That doesn't really make much sense, does it? If he's in this burning, uh, horrible place of torment, why is he asking only for a drop of water? Well, that doesn't make much sense if he's in this place of, of, uh, of fire. It does make sense if he's been in the grave for a while and he's dry. That drop of water might mean a little bit more. So I believe that is indication here that this is not referring to the, the uh, an everlasting hell fire, but to the grave. As we see in verse 23, it says that he was in the grave. Now, so this passage is, again, a parable. has a symbolic meaning, message. In reality, this has nothing to do with an ever-burning hellfire, nothing at all. But as Joshua's way of describing this division that existed between Jew and Gentiles, and the fact that many Jews would find themselves cut off from salvation because they refused to accept and to acknowledge Joshua the Messiah. And for this reason... They would not be in Abraham's bosom, Abraham's bosom representing the kingdom, representing eternal life. And because of that, there would be a great gulf representing the distance between them and salvation. Because, again, they refused to accept Yahshua the Messiah. So, again, this has nothing to do with eternal, eternal damnation. This has nothing, nothing to do with uh, hellfire. This has everything to do with this concept of division with ethnicities. I want to move on now to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verse 20. It says there, and the beast was taken. Now the beast, as we all know, is the anti-Messiah. This is a man of sin, the son of perdition. And with him, the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. So we see three, three groups here. Number one, we see the beast. Number two, we see the false prophet. Number three, we see those who received his image those who worshipped him, says these both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. So what do we see here? We see here the beast, again, the man of sin, the son of perdition, and his false prophet, and those who worshipped them, that they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Now, what do we not see? We see no mention of the word eternal here, do we? We see no mention of the word suffering forever. But even if we did, we know that this would still be a euphemism for, for Yahweh's judgment. But it's not literally forever. But we don't see that. We simply see that they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And again, we, we believe in a lake of fire. We believe that there's going to be an actual fire where people will be consumed for their iniquity. I want to transition now to what I consider two of the more challenging passages to really answer in Scripture when it comes to this notion of hell fire. On the surface, both examples seem to convey this idea, this thought of an ever-burning fire and torment without any rest. Now, the first one's in Revelation 14. Revelation 14, 9 through 11 says this, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark 
in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of Elohim, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation or wrath, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receives the mark of his name. So we see here that those who accept the mark of the beast, those who worship the beast, those who defy our Father in heaven, that they're going to share in the wrath prepared for the beast and the false prophet. It says here that they will be tormented with fire and brimstone, and they will have no rest day or night. Now, based on the Greek, this passage seems to be seems to convey what we find in the English, that those who receive the mark will literally suffer forever and ever without rest. So how do we explain this? How do we explain this? Or again, I think the language is simply symbolic. It's symbolic, it's not literal. The, the language here is describing the destruction. Those will receive who, who, who receives the mark of the beast, uh, the, the, what they will suffer. Matter of fact, I want to look at an, an example before going to our second uh, passage. In Isaiah 34, we see a language here that's very similar to what we see here in Revelation. And yet we know that this is not forever. This is not burning forever anyway. Isaiah 34, 8 through 11, it says, For it is a day of Yahweh's vengeance. Now this is, I believe, speaking about the day of Yahshua's return. It says, In the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion, and the streams thereof shall be turned into pitch, and the dust thereof into brimstone, and the land thereof shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched day nor night. The smoke thereof shall go up forever and ever. That sounds very similar to what we see also in Revelation 14. It says, From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the cormorant and the bittern shall possess it, the owl also and the raven shall dwell in it, and he shall stretch out upon it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. Now, according to verse 6, the wrath here is focused on Basra and, the, and Idumea. Idumea is the land of Edom. Now, both of these locations are within the modern nation of Jordan today. What I want to focus on is what we see in verse 10. It says here that the fire, the brimstone, will not be quenched. It's not going to be quenched in Basra and Edom. And it says there that their smoke will ascend up forever and ever from one generation to another. Again, this sounds very, very similar to what we see also in Revelation 14, doesn't it? It's almost verbatim what we see in Revelation 14. But, el- but w- w- what else, though, do we see here in Isaiah 34? It says here that Basra and Edom will lie in waste, and the birds, and we see later in the passage that even wild beasts, it says, will, will make this their home. Or can a, a beast or a bird make a place that is burning forever and ever their home? Or of course not. This is not referring to burning forever and ever. Now, maybe it's going to remain desolate forever. That's a possibility. It seems to convey that. Maybe it's going to remain desolate. But certainly it's not going to burn forever. Again, as the, the language here shall not be quenched and it's going to, the, the smokes are going to send up forever and ever is simply a euphemism. It's a Hebrewism. 
to show that the destruction will be complete. But again, this notion of perpetual fire and torment simply is not the case. So I want to share one more passage before going to the, the, the more challenging passage here. And, and this was in Jude 7. And uh, I'm sure some of you have been anticipating this passage, wondering, you know, when is he going to share this one? This is a heavy hitter, hitter here. Jude 7 says this, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh were set forth as an example. So notice that. This is an example. An example of what? What are we speaking about? What is this is an example. What example is this of? It says suffering the vengeance of what? It says suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So we see here that Sodom and Gomorrah suffered eternal fire. Now we know that Sodom and Gomorrah is no longer burning today. Matter of fact, maybe if I can get that. Uh, in our last trip to Israel, we went to um, what many believe be, to be the site of Gomorrah. So that's right near the, um, right near Masada, near the uh, Dead Sea. And you know what's amazing about that place is if you look down from Masada, it's white. Now this is in the Judean desert, so it's, it's pretty well desolate anyway, but, but it's, the, the Judean desert is more of a light brown. But this is white. Matter of fact, this is this white. And this white here. Now this here is ash. And the other incredible thing about Gomorrah, this, this ancient site, is all you see there is this ash. And if you walk, it just crumbles underneath your feet. Some is sort of like this where you can pick up and take with you. And then this here, this, this is a sulfur bowl. You can smell it. You can actually smell the sulfur to this day. From what I understand, there, there's really nowhere on earth like this place they believe to be the site of Gomorrah. Now, I don't have any pictures today for this, but, but it's desolate. There's nothing there. All you see is this. You see ash, lots of ash, and you see sulfur balls scattered throughout. They're kind of hard to find now because people have been combing this area for quite a while, but I found a few, and most people, I think, found at least one or two that was within our tour group. So, you know, I've been there. I've been to Gomorrah. Gomorrah's not burning. There's nothing there as desolate, and yet Scripture says that Gomorrah suffered the example of eternal fire. How does that work? How does something suffer the, the, the example of eternal fire, and yet it's not burning? And we know it's not burning. Or the only thing that makes sense is eternal fire does not mean forever. And again, we've already seen that. It shall not be quenched. The fire shall not be quenched. The, these phrases are, are euphemisms. They're Hebrewisms, I believe, conveying the thought that that Yahweh's destruction will occur, and then it's going to continue to occur until it's complete. In the case of Judah, as soon as the destruction was complete, the fire ceased. In the case of the final judgment, as soon as the final judgment is complete, as soon as all of mankind's been judged, and all those who will be thrown into the lake of fires is, is cast in, it's going to be complete. That fire will not continue to burn. Now, I want to close with Revelation 20, Revelation 20, uh, verse 10, and also verses 14 through 15. It says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, really such they were, because we know that the beast and false prophet will be thrown in at the return of Yahshua. You know, Scripture says that the, the, uh, 
the, the manifestation, the brightness, the illumination of Yahshua will destroy, will, 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 uh, they, they will be cast in at that point. It says, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, it says here that Satan the devil will be thrown into this, this lake of fire where he will be tormented day and night. We're going to, we've already seen multiple examples, multiple examples showing that this phrase or phrases like this is not literally, is not literal. This does not literally refer to forever, that he's going to be tormented forever. You know, as we saw in Jeremiah, Judah suffered fire that would not be quenched. And again, it was quenched. As we saw in Jude, Sodom and Gomorrah suffered the example of eternal fire, and yet we know that that fire has been quenched. There's no fire burning. We also know, based on Isaiah, that Edom will suffer fire and brimstone through fire. It's not be quenched. It's going to go up forever and ever, it says. But yet we also know that birds and, and the animals are going to make it home. So again, it's not a perpetual fire. Not there, not anywhere. So what do we see here? Or what we see is Satan's complete annihilation. His destruction is what we see. According to Ezekiel 28.18, I tell you, we were just itching to review that this morning. We, we were looking at Isaiah 28 in the Bible study. 28.18, Satan's going to be brought down to ashes, it says. Satan's going to be brought down to ashes. And also Paul in Romans 16, verse 20, says that Satan's going to be, going to be bruised. In the Greek, that means to be crushed. So it seems to be crushed. So again, the language here is not literal, but symbolic of, of the annihilation of Satan the devil. Now, we also see here that the great white throne judgment and second death will occur. It says that those who are not found in the book of life, that they will be thrown into this lake of fire. After this, we also see that it says death and hell. The word hell here comes from the Greek Hades, different from Gehenna. Remember, hell corresponds to Sheol, or Hades corresponds to Sheol, and it simply refers to the grave. You know, Paul, in a real key passage in 1 Corinthians 15, he describes the judgment. And he says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Meaning that at the end of this great white throne judgment, this second death, at the very end, death and the grave will cease to exist. There will be no more death. There will be no more grave, not at this point. So as we see this notion of an ever-burning hellfires, it's not found scripturally. This, again, was an invention by the Greeks, going all the way back to the Egyptians, really, this concept of an immortal soul. There is a day of wrath coming. You know, we need to remember that. There is a day of wrath coming. And I do believe that that wrath is spoken of within the lake of fire is fire. I believe that the wicked will be consumed but they're not going to suffer forever and ever and ever. That's not what we find scripturally. They're not going to suffer without rest or reprieve. No. They're going to suffer, but they're going to suffer for a short time when they're thrown in, and, and, and there will be, as Joshua says, weeping and the gnashing of teeth, but not forever. Well, I pray that this has helped your understanding with this concept of hellfire. You know, there, there are so many man-made beliefs out there, so many traditional beliefs and. I know uh, for many of us here at the ministry, before we witness to somebody, we almost have to tear things down. We have to tear it down and 
get down to the foundation and build back up. So it's important that we're able to do that, that we understand these concepts, that we understand these theologies like hellfire, and that we can explain why we don't believe this, why it doesn't fit scripturally. So I pray that it's been a blessing and a help, and may Yahweh bless you and be with you.